I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories. Listener discretion is advised. In this case, bingo. Here's retired Fort Worth cold case detective Manny Reyes again. Uh, He too got caught with uh, DNA, but he also uh, did a lot of killings in uh, Austin and Tucson and tried to kill some people in Alaska. Uh, He got arrested in a bunch of states and I finally found him and arrested him in Florida. He did not stop killing. When he got arrested, he was trying to break into a girl's room in Florida. That's what they got him for. So he never stopped. But he actually lived here in Fort Worth in the early 80s, had a wife and child here. After her father was convicted in 2009 for the murder of Catherine Monroe, Lisa began to get a better understanding of who he really was. But I do feel inclined to get as much information on my father as I can. So I know what type of man that he was. All the information I know is from my mom, my grandfather, my grandfather's ex-wife, and from Detective Manny Reyes, and then what I see online. And so I feel all the information that is given to me is beneficial because he is my father, and that gives me an insight to who he was and where I come from. Manny Reyes told Lisa she and her mother were fortunate that Odom left them. I don't know what possessed him to not ever harm my mother, per se. Um, But my mother did say that they they were in a hotel room. She said I was very young. Um, She said that he had given her something to drink, and she woke up. I wasn't there. He wasn't there. She couldn't find me. Um, She remembered that he was with a young woman and a man. Within days, you know, prior of this incident happening and remembered where they lived. So she says she walked all the way there and I was there and that he had tried to sell me to these people um, as a small child, baby, actually. I was a baby. After his conviction for the murder of Catherine Monroe, Odom served nine years in prison before dying of brain cancer in 2018. It's possible Lucky Odom could have committed one of the seven cold cases we're discussing in this podcast, but he never confessed to any of them, and it's difficult to track his exact whereabouts while he was free. We know he was in Fort Worth in 1982 when he murdered Catherine Monroe, and we know he would occasionally drop in on Lisa and her mother while they lived in Fort Worth for a few years. But he roamed the country. We found various arrest records for Odom spanning the last few decades. But many of Odom's crimes happened before some police departments even had computers, long before the Internet, even longer before smartphones could track your location and merchants could trace transactions. Virtual footprints are all but invisible from that time period. It's easy to come to a town and not tell anybody who you are and hang out for two, three days and not let anybody, nobody's going to know who you are. And unless you get a ticket or the police are called and they identify you, you're not going to leave any record behind that you were here. It's like when you go on vacation, unless you use your credit card. If you go on vacation, so you just pick a place 
and you pay cash when you get there, uh, and you put down whatever name you want to on the card, stay there two, three days, and then leave. If you didn't put your real name down, nobody will ever know that you were there unless you tell someone. And there's no way of tracking them when they don't leave some sort of paper trail behind or something that somebody identified them. When Odom was transferred to Fort Worth to be tried for the murder of Catherine Monroe, police did attempt to match his fingerprints and DNA to preserved evidence from several other 1980s cold cases. Nothing hit. But as the science around DNA evolves, that could change. Even though Odom has since died, Lisa said she's willing to provide her own DNA for future testing. I'm not ashamed of where I come from, but I am ashamed of the man who he was and who he became. I feel that there is so much left about my father to be discovered. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes um, to help families heal and to get answers. He has passed away, and hopefully that would give potential victims and their families peace knowing that he's no longer walking this earth to hurt other people. So now we have two men, one a confirmed serial killer and the other a convicted murderer and rapist who police believe killed more women hanging around Fort Worth in the mid-1980s. Unfortunately, there were more like them. Imagine Fort Worth as a mature-for-its-age young adult. It wears Wrangler jeans and cowboy hats and talks with a drawl. It says yes, ma'am, and no, sir and courteously pulls over when an ambulance needs to pass. Arlington, Texas, could be Fort Worth's teenage sibling, just to the east, but in the same county. Arlington was raised to be respectful, too, but it seems to be of a different generation, with a lot more energy and an extreme interest in sports and entertainment. The Texas Rangers play in Arlington. In 2009, the Dallas Cowboys began playing there, too. Arlington has the largest population of any suburb in the entire Dallas-Fort Worth area and was the birthplace of the now worldwide chain of Six Flags theme parks. From here, you can be in downtown Dallas in less than 30 minutes. It's also less than 15 minutes from the Wedgwood area in southwest Fort Worth, where Angie Ewart and Sarah Koska were last seen alive in December of 1984. Just six months after those young women disappeared, Arlington was also the location of a different gruesome murder scene. Yes, sir. It just didn't any question that uh, this has changed everybody's thinking in the neighborhood. In fact, some people have left the neighborhood. Others have begun to lock their doors. All in the wake of yesterday's brutal murders of 14-year-old Danielle Lemire, her 12-year-old sister Renee, and their house guest, 17-year-old John Bradley. On June 17, 1985... A Monday, Joanne Lemire, who often worked double shifts as a supervisor at a telephone answering service, drove away from her Arlington duplex toward work at about 7.30 a.m., leaving her two teenage daughters and a house guest home alone. School was out for the summer, and Joanne had invited John Paul Bradley to stay with them for a while. She and her daughters had met John at church, and he needed a place to crash. 
he had been having problems at home, and another family in the church had already told him that he couldn't stay with them any longer. Joanne came home from work at about 10.15 that night. In the first frantic minutes, after she found the body of her youngest daughter, bound and bloodied on the bathroom floor, and her older daughter, violated, nude, and now lifeless in the master bedroom, John seemed like the obvious suspect to police. That was before they found his body under a pile of laundry near the washer and dryer almost two hours later. The first triple homicide in Arlington's history left authorities baffled. There were no signs of forced entry. All three teens had been bound with their hands behind their backs, each found in a different part of the home. Both Danielle and Renee were partially clothed from the waist down, leading investigators to suspect sexual assault as the motive. Later, investigators determined Danielle, the oldest, had indeed been raped. A month later, police reported that they had a suspect. Although Arlington police believe they have developed a solid suspect in this case, they caution there may not be an arrest right away. Police say this investigation has been very complicated right from the beginning, and police want to be sure that when they do arrest somebody, they arrest the right person. That suspect was Ronald Stephen Tromboli, a 40-year-old married man and father who lived just down the street from the Lemire home. He knew the Lemire family, and his stepdaughter was a close friend of the youngest Lemire girl. Both families had recently moved from the same apartment complex to this quiet street. The Lemire family moved there first, and the Trimboli family followed them. Trimboli's attorneys portrayed him as a family man, too burdened caring for a newborn baby and a bad run of financial luck to spend time sexually obsessing over the older Lemire girl, as prosecutors asserted in his trial. His defense team said he didn't have the time or attention to plan and carry out a triple murder. Nothing in Troboli's past hinted he might murder three teenagers, especially a friend of his stepdaughter's. But he did have a criminal record dating back more than a decade that had followed him all the way from his home state of New Jersey. He was even on probation for previous crimes, which... This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.